Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Of Poetry Podcast with Twyla Nui and Natalie Solmer. Twyla Nui has an MFA in writing and poetics from Naropa. Her poems are finalists for the 2019 Coniston Prize at Radar Poetry and won honorable mention in the 2019 Juxtapros Poetry Contest. You can read recent work at Interim Poetics, Sugar House Review, Green Mountains Review, and Moist Poetry Journal. Twyla lives in Northern California at the confluence of the Sacramento and San Joaquin Rivers. Natalie Solmer is the founder and editor-in-chief of the Indianapolis Review and is an assistant professor of English at Ivy Tech Community College. She grew up in South Bend, Indiana, went to Clemson University in South Carolina, and majored in horticulture. Before her return to grad school and career in teaching, she worked in the horticultural field, primarily as a grocery store florist for 13 years. Her poetry has been published in numerous publications such as Colorado Review, North American Review, The Literary Review, and Pleiades. She also has published her visual poetry and visual art in places such as Yes Poetry and Babel Tower Notice Board. Hello and welcome, Twyla and Natalie. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Glad to be here. There are so many confluences um, between your work um, and I'll just say selfishly in things I'm really interested in, um, in terms of projects and plants and children and presses and um, even geography. And so, um, but before we, we get into um, deeper conversation, I was wondering if you'd both like to start with reading a poem. All right. So this poem is called Girls of Lake and it's for Diane Seuss, who is basically an icon to me uh, in poetry. And she grew up very close to where I grew up. Um, Okay, Girls of Lake. It seemed there were always tornadoes blowing through you. Every day of my childhood when the storm warnings rolled over the thick gray glass of our television. And if the sirens didn't sing from behind the curtains my mother made, if there wasn't death and wind in our own square of lawn beyond that cloth, then it seemed they were always calling in Cass, your county over from mine, reporting a funnel in Dwajak or Edwardsburg. When I was a girl and didn't know you, when I had the legs of a colt and you were done being an orchid on the streets of New York City, when you had returned in the time of your white dress, and your good legs to the basin of the lakes of your birth. A thousand milkweed pods opened their cotton and drifted. We knew the same water meadows, same cattails and loose stripes. I dug them up and collected the clumped clay into plastic pots for my own pond. We both grew on a flat horizon of lake and girl and the stacks of sky hammering the sky into us, the sky, entering us down to our ankles forever. We will never get the lake out of our hair. We grew like the poison vines along the north-south continental divide. I straddled it and drove and was driven around town 
I went with boys across the line to buy liquor on Sundays. I skirted your girlhood, girlhood home. I skirted your moon cemetery and dipped my skin into diamond, into eagle lakes at night where I lit cigarettes and rejected marriage proposals. You and I, all our piss and waste flowing into the bowl of Michigan, which means large lake, which means we white people saying lake, large lake, and half the language people with our skin wanted to kill. You were born in Michigan City, which is in Indiana, which is the same misnomer I was born in, murder on our tongues. You have noted the Walmart parking lot and its covering of graves. You have shown up at the damp threshold of my remembering. And now I am born lushly again, given permission to name this dark paradise. Beautiful, thank you. Thank you. I, I just have to say, I underlined so many lines mm. of that poem <laughs> as I read it, Natalie, it's gorgeous. Oh, thank you, thank you so thank much. You. This is called Charles Tends His Orchids, and it's from um, my manuscript called A Tangled Bank. Charles tends his orchids. He prepares the pots with peat moss and fir bark, 30, 60, a hundredfold. He sleeps and rises night and day day and night thinking, the measure you give will be the measure you get. Pay attention, the earth produces itself, first the stalk, then the head, wide green leaf, teardrop bud, the petal framed mouth, open. Nothing hidden, he sprays mist, over 30, 60, 100 fold, opens and lifts the palms of his hands. Here are my mother and my brothers. And that was one that I underlined a lot <laughs> on yours. I love that one too. Glad you read that. Thank you. And the orchids across. Yes those two poems um it's true. Yeah. so interesting when I was reading your um manuscripts this morning um a word that leapt out at me as linking both of them was the word dissolve mm -hmm. which is in both but I mean there's so many linkings right like that's just choosing one um but I thought that was like a really interesting verb mm -hmm. to have in both of your your works um, and that there's something really organic and um, natural about that, that image and that word. Um, yeah. And that you're both working with kind of naturalism or, um, you know, between Charles Darwin and, and Twyla's work and then your work, Natalie and florist shop. And I mean, it's just, yeah, I think that's, it, it's, it feels very fortuitous to have you both here at the same time mm -hmm. on this shortest day of the year, I should add a winter solstice. Mm -hmm. um, 
Would you I both- love that you I love that you let us choose the poem <laughs> yes. and then we both chose a poem mm. that orchids happened to be in. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm kind of a I'm kind of a believer in um um I don't even know what the right word for it is, but synchronicity or um something like that that we really are all connected mm-hmm. through through some in some way that we can't understand. And I love it when things happen. Happy accidents is a good mm-hmm. <laughs> is a good um, description anyway. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, there's only so much planning you can do, I think. And lately I feel like that at poetry readings that like it used to be like I would be set like these are these are the poems I want to read, but now it's more like, how do I feel? What do I want to read mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm, space? Mm-hmm. How does the space feel? How are mm-hmm. people yep. reacting? And if I push back against that and I'm like, and I, and I kind of prioritize what I want to do, never, it never works out as well. Like the energy in the room, you mm. can tell that's kind of an aside, but something I'm thinking <laughs> about lately. Yeah. Can you tell on Zoom readings? Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, there are lots of different ways, right? There's like people in the chat and then there's like, like the reactions you can put up. Mm-hmm. And if you've mm-hmm. got it in, I mean, I do like having it in like the gallery, like right now we're all three on the screen together, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I think it took me a really long time to figure that out, even with teaching online <laughs> classes that at first I was just had the speaker mode, but then when I could see mm-hmm. the whole class mm-hmm. does feel more together and like, you're actually in the same space, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I do think that's really interesting. And it does go along with all the water in Natalie's, um, in Natalie's oh, yeah. manuscript, which was one thing that I just loved. I loved the, um, in the first poem, um, which is the title poem, right? The water mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like being in a river, like mm-hmm. flowing with the currents of a river, mm-hmm. the rhythms of that poem. And I think what you're talking about is like that. It's, I think that there are currents there are human currents, right? That we step into or step out of that we fight against or we flow with. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think what you're doing is reading that whatever current is happening in the room mm-hmm. and then being mm-hmm. able to flow with that rather than fight against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like that idea. Um, I think I think it, (laughs) I personally think it might be the way to actual change, Mm -hmm. which is um, the opposite of what we normally do. It feels like when there's resistance, then you end up creating some other iteration of the same problem. Mm -hmm. If there were some way to sort of flow around it or under or through it, you Mm -hmm. might get to a new you might get to a new place. And that I should say is totally, you know, that is not my, <laughs> that's from reading the, or listening to the Tao Te Ching and other, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, other books that I've read that have that same, the same idea. That does not, that is not my idea, mm-hmm. but I really <laughs> like it. And it feels mm-hmm. like, it feels like maybe a different way, um, 
a different way to approach things, mm-hmm. problems, a different way to approach problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Water. Yeah. I was just trying to think, okay, how do we apply that to the poetry publishing issue? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Flowing like water with the uh, yeah. issues of disparity and publishing and yeah. people getting their first books published and because I know we were talking about how we're both looking for homes for their manuscript. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure, Twilight, if you, you know, are you have you been sending out a lot or are you like, I don't know what your philosophy is on the whole thing. I'm not really sure. Um, I have opinions. Yeah, <laughs> and that I but I'm very sort of cautious about sharing because I know right. that um, I know that I also don't see everything. And that sort of two things can be true at once. But I do see that there is a higher, a powered and moneyed hierarchy mm-hmm. in poetry. And um, it's connected to academia. It's connected to all the same yeah. sort of, you know, the systems that run the United States. It's not mm-hmm. separate. It's not separate from that. Um, and there's also this, you know, these small presses. Um, doing their thing, which I think can be very, which I think can be very different um, than the hierarchy, can behave very different, differently um, than the hierarchy. And, and I don't mean that the work coming out of those hierarchies isn't good work either. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is, I think, mm-hmm. you know, but I think that there's a lot happening sort of in and around the edges or underneath um, that's really interesting and um, worth paying attention to and spending time with. Um, and people miss it uh, because it it doesn't have as big a reach mm-hmm. as as the other as that uh, the the sort of um, established yeah um, institutions yeah right? the things that are lauded yeah given like the stamp of approval basically yeah I yeah. love um Han I know you're doing uh reading deeply into um Virginia Woolf and Vida and Three Guineas is one of my favorite feminist tracks actually mm-hmm. and particularly not A Room of One's Own but where she talks about um she talks about the fact that you can't fight fascism in another country, if you haven't addressed the fascism that exists mm. within your own mm. systems of government. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she talks about, you know, medals of honor being pinned on people for going off and killing, <laughs> you know, killing other people. And she talks about um, sort of like that, that is a kind of that is a kind of fascism that you need that you need to look at, and she connects it with um, sexism as well. So that's that's worth going and reading. I haven't read it in a while, so I don't have like the exact quotes, um, but it was it was it changed the way that I see things. Yeah, mm-hmm. reading that book. It's on my it's on my list to read because I don't believe I've ever read it. And now I've only read it through the lens of like Vita and Virginia's letters where it comes <laughs> up and uh, Vita really doesn't like it. 
really does not like that track, which made me, of course, like, I'm like, oh, yes, <laughs> this. Um, so it's very, it's very interesting. But there's also that comment um, Wolf makes to Vita about um, the young people in the war and how um, these young people who should be home and making love to each other, um, <laughs> which, you know, I think is um, a, a pretty incredible statement um, and shows someone who's like really involved in community and um, others and thinking about others. So thank you for that, Twyla. I will definitely. Yeah, I need to read that one as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you, did, would you both like to just take a moment and describe what your current, your manuscripts are? Because I think that'd be wonderful to hear. Um, Natalie, would you like to begin? Sure. Uh, well, <laughs> I know that I need to um, work on describing this. Uh, it is called Water Castle currently. It's something that I've been working on since I did my MFA at Butler. Um, and that's been about almost 10 years, almost, um, now. And it's, you know, it did have a lot of the grocery store florist poems in it and some relationship poems. And, you know, when I was in my MFA, I was pregnant the entire time or nursing because I had my two sons, like, basically during my program. <laughs> um, and so there was some of that. Um, as it's evolved, it's evolved more into talking about um, my, where I'm from, my origins in South Bend and like my grandparents. And um, I was lucky enough to know them and they were a big part of my life. Um, but, you know, everybody in my, my parents' generation, they left South Bend because it's one of those Rust Belt towns where the industry all left. Um, and my grandparents had immigrated there, you know, to work in the factories and stuff. And then, um, but my mom and dad, they stayed there and I was raised there. And so I, I don't know, I've, I've always been fascinated by that kind of stuff. Uh, being a Cancer Scorpio double water sign, there's a lot of water in there. There's a lot of origin stuff in there. And yeah, that's mm. mainly, I guess, what there is. I mean, there's the floral stuff too, relationship stuff too, but mm. I don't know. <laughs> um, I love that moment in one of your poems where um, the poem reads at this moment, my mother says, I know your kids are half black, but I don't want to hear this from you. You're not writing a poem. You're writing a manifesto. And that just made oh, me yeah. like sit back. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, what if we're not all writing poems? Like, what if everything we're writing about <laughs> is manifesto? Because, you know, there's that whole, like, every prayer, every poem is a prayer. Every poem is a love poem. Every poem is a love prayer. You know, like, there's like all these different formulations we love to say. Um, but then I'm like, what if it's like more than that? What if we're like, make, we are making claims and arguments when we're talking about our feelings and everything else. Right. Um, I have this like, um, definition bobbing around in my head right now from Elizabeth Bradfield's essay in poem, the poems country, that anthology where she said, talks about oceanic thinking as like this generous thinking. That's all about connections between the facts of, of the world and then mm-hmm. our feelings as related to those facts. And so like having that, I mean, I think bringing the word oceanic to mm-hmm. your manuscript too, right. With the, with the water, um, mm-hmm. 
that that really works and that connectivity. Um, and what Twyla was saying earlier too about presses and at the edges. Um, in, in this essay, Bradfield talks about like the edges of the water. That's where the that's like the messy, weird places where the life is mm. happening, right at the edges. Mm. Um, it's called it's called the lit, littoral zone. It's L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L. Mm. And I learned mm. that word reading on the origin of species. Like I had to go mm. cool. because I didn't know where it was. And it's incredibly um, diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that space creates all kinds of life, that space between land and water. That's so cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Um, uh, Natalie, your, your book is right now it's divided in sections and Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really interested (laughs) in if you keep those sections, I know a lot of poets end up not keeping sections. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard Benjamin Garcia talk about this with his book that like, he tried to like divide things and then it mm-hmm. ended up being like no all the narratives need mm-hmm. to like rush together mm-hmm. you can, like and for him he, he you know he had these like very ode driven poems and then he had angry poems and like they all need to be of a piece kind of and um and I think about that a lot oh yes <laughs> to be honest yeah I it's harder for me to see the bigger picture sometimes and yeah I mean I was dividing things into sections and things that were more, more themed and I had a lot of sections. I think I still have like five. Um, and one time they were all named, they were different colors <laughs> um, from Frida Kahlo's diary where she has like, I don't know if you've seen this, no. where she describes colors and what they make her think of like, hmm. um, you know, anyway, I, it was related to that. And I, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, as the book becomes more cohesive and things like that, it's like, okay, maybe I can get rid of some of these sections or like you said, even getting rid of sections altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I just feel like, I know that it helps if you have that together more when you're submitting your manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that worries me because I don't know if I have all of that figured out. But to me, that's also not the most important part of a book. Like I don't... Mm-hmm necessarily like when I'm reading a book of poetry I'm not mm-hmm. that concerned if it has sections or if it doesn't or yeah. you know yeah um, exactly no I, I mean I think really think it matters like what they're doing right that mm-hmm. into because you can have sections for different reasons um and I mean it's interesting to me one of the things I look for as a book with sections is sometimes I'm curious I'm like is this more than one book like is mm-hmm. it <laughs> because yeah. sometimes there's that impulse yes. and you realize like yes or or Carl Phillips has that you know I probably brought this up before on the podcast but like that your first book is doing so many different things mm-hmm. that it's just it's like this I don't know it's like this magnetizing force that pulls all the things you're interested in into this yeah. one orbit and so sometimes it's like whoa do I do I have more than one book here? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something I think about. It's been mm-hmm. my, I mean, that was mm-hmm. my thing too. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought up the quote that deals with like race and interracial uh, relationship that I'm in and uh, my kids, you know, being black and 
you know, different situations I've had. And it's very, um, with the manifesto thing, you know, it can be a downfall if, or it definitely can be seen as a downfall if your poem is like overly preachy or, um, you know. Uh, so yeah, there was something that my mom read and it didn't rub her the right way. And I, you know, um, it's, it's touchy and also including family members in a poem. So I really, there's many poems that I'm like, mm-hmm. I've gotten rid of many things I've gotten rid of over the course of doing this manuscript. And I don't know, you know, even including some of it or Mm. not at all. And like, we were talking about this as a white writer, do you even write about race, even writing about being in an interracial relationship? It's just, you know, do you have the right to write about? It's it's like, it's very um, fraught for me. I, I have to say, I loved the way that you included that, that the manuscript was very much in your voice, but it was also, it was also multivocal. Mm. So you were hearing, so other voices were coming in. So interrupting even, or giving a different perspective um, than your perspective. And that's something that I just adore in poetry period is um is when subjectivity is challenged in the poem itself. And I feel like you did that, um, you did that in several of your poems in really beautiful ways. I love your grandmother's, <laughs> I love your grandmother's <laughs> voices um, in the poems and the one that Han mentioned. And then also the one from when you were in the Caribbean um, too, um, the, hearing those voices, it's mm-hmm. a different, it, it just brings a different, um, it gives the reader d- many different points of view mm-hmm. in, in a single poem, which I think is, is so lovely. Well, thank you for that. I mean, and that makes me feel encouraged that, you know, I need to stay and try and work with that, but it's also a great huge responsibility right so if you're gonna use somebody else's voice and especially um you know my family my partner his family or if I quote them or something like that I have to be really respectful you know really careful um and so it's it's a big responsibility but yes I love also having voices and and in your book the voices of Darwin and Jesus is amazing um and so yeah thank you for that (laughs) <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious about your um how uh, in your project I mean how this idea came about with um the conversations with Darwin and Jesus and <laughs> yeah so I was working out I was working my way out of Mormonism um really that started at about 30 it took me 10 years to um it took me 10 years to find my way out, but um, I was reading Marilyn Robinson's collections of essays Mm -hmm. at one point. And she talked about after her PhD, going back and re-educating herself because they hadn't read the primary texts. They'd read commentary, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, they'd read commentary on Karl Marx and commentary on um, Darwin and commentary on 
whoever. Mm -hmm. And, and so I was like, oh, well, on the origin of species was kind of a big deal. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's formed a lot of, um, in fact, Western, Western thought is sort of stuck in uh, the survival of the fittest, Mm -hmm. which actually was not Darwin's phrase. It was, um, I always get the name wrong. It was his cousin whose last name is Spencer. And I mix him up with the poet. So mm-hmm. I can't remember, but if you look it up, <laughs> it's his cousin, somebody Spencer, and it didn't make it into the, on the origin of species until like the sixth edition. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think that that cousin was actually involved in eugenics also. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, so this book <laughs> that I had never read was probably affecting my life in ways that I didn't know, right? Because it's just so seeped into everything um, that we do. And so it, so are the Christian gospels, right? <laughs> like there are, these, mm-hmm. there are these texts that are sort of threaded through, um, through Western culture and interpreted and reinterpreted. And for Mormonism, it was always through the lens of the leadership that you got the interpretation of the text. So I thought, well, what would happen if I just went and I sort of put all the stories about these, Mm. all the ideas about these books that I've heard over time aside, and I I go and read the actual books. Mm. And they were completely different. (laughs) like, Like what I encountered in both, um, in both texts was so shocking and surprising and, mm-hmm. um, beautiful mm-hmm. really. Um, and I had never been taught, taught them in that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Jesus I met was itinerant. Mm-hmm. He was, um, a mystic. He was, um, as someone who was challenging religious and social authority, mm-hmm. right? Like undermining the social fabric, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was picking away at those threads. And Darwin, um, was not was not a sure was not like this is the way it is. He wasn't saying survival of the fittest is what's happening. He was gathering from all these observations he'd made over years, both in the Galapagos, but really more in his garden. Again, we're back to gardens, big (laughs) garden, you know, and, and with like a poet's attention to the world, like the passages, some of the passages in that book are, and it's why I, Um, instead of writing poems about the books, I lifted lines and collaged lines together from um, from across those texts because the language itself was so gorgeous. I, I just Mm -hmm. wanted, I just wanted it to exist, you know, on its Mm -hmm. own. And then they really did start talking to each other. So (laughs) Um, like there's a whole section in on the origin of species about zebras and donkeys. And when I read 
the Gospels, I realized there is no donkey, you know, <laughs> like the story of Mary riding the donkey. Mm. Like, there is no donkey in the, mm. there is no donkey in the actual Gospels, but that's like a story that we tell about mm. it all the mm-hmm. time. Anyway, so, um, so they started talking to each other in really weird ways. And, and Darwin and Jesus, I think I made them up <laughs> just as the Darwin and Jesus we meet in the larger culture are made up. They aren't, you know, they're the story that we receive through other people's eyes about who um, those men were. They're not the actual men. They're not accurate. They're not accurate. There's no way to know exactly who those people were. And so why can't my, why can't my Darwin and Jesus be as real as those? So, so um, that, that's a really long way <laughs> of talking about what, um, what this book is. It really was like the joy of like my mind, um, meeting those two texts and then the three of them, um, making something together mm-hmm. because I do feel like, um, for me, the process of writing a poem is isn't me Uh (laughs) language comes and moves through me for a moment but it's not like um the poems that I really like I don't feel like I have a lot of control over I don't know if that makes sense I feel similar um and even when I was the grandmother poem that you were talking about I mean both of my grandmothers passed away a while a while ago um, and I really just felt like I was, I just had a moment, um, it was in the middle of the night, as usual, when I'm writing. Um, and I was just sort of trying to channel them, basically. I mean, I wasn't trying, it was just sort of happening, you know. Um, and I was just hearing them. And I was just like, you know, what if I just write down what they're telling me, <laughs> you know, and then have them, and then they're kind of talking together. And um, But yeah, definitely, I feel the same way with poetry. You know, you get it, for me, it's usually just a line maybe will come to me and I don't know where it comes from and then just elaborating on it and like you said just kind of moving through you and it is a spirit it is a spiritual thing for me too um for sure because it's pretty unexplained inexplicable um and also why it gives me so much joy I mean I don't know I always think about it I think poetry is so weird and the whole poetry (laughs) business and you because you know when I'm having my moments I'm like why the heck am I in the like what am I doing <laughs> why am I doing this you know um but I just love it it just brings me so much joy and mm. um yeah it is like a spiritual experience for me reading other people's poetry and you know writing mm-hmm. like a spiritual practice like so many people say yeah yeah I do feel like um and maybe it's because I'm reaching, like I'm past midlife, right? Most likely. I'm not going to live till I'm 100. <laughs> um, and so um, I have really started asking myself, like, why, why am I doing this? Or why does anybody do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm less and less interested in the, hi- in the, hi- in the hierarchy Um, I'm more and more interested in the work 
and the process. Um, I'm less and less interested in sort of recognition and or um, publication and more and more interested in experiment and play and sort of art on my own terms rather than art that needs to be that needs to be um, validated. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. Uh -huh. By, by a larger by a larger cultural mechanism that I don't even uh -huh. think is healthy or um, um, what's the right word? That, that I don't think is really life-giving. You know, the art itself is, the art that comes out of it is, and I don't mean to undermine the amount of work and dedication and um, all of it, all of that that goes into being successful, you know, what we describe as successful, um, mm -hmm. because that's real. People are really <laughs> like nose to the grindstone, yeah. you know, pushing hard, mm -hmm. um, but I think they all, you know, there, there are also the other true things, which is that um, it is not disconnected from money often. It is not disconnected from um, access to uh, certain institutions, um, which, which are not disconnected from the founding of this country, which is not disconnected from sexism, which is not disconnected from white supremacy. And it doesn't matter. It feels like to me that it doesn't, as far as I can see, and again, <laughs> you know, my seeing is, is limited, but as far as I can see, it isn't um, having more, um, a wider variety of people enter the institution doesn't mm -hmm. actually change the way the institution functions mm -hmm. in the sense that um, it doesn't make more room. Yeah. You still have hierarchies, hierarchy. You still have mm -hmm. big, lots of space on the bottom and narrow, narrow, narrow at the top. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know what the answer to that is. And I'm not even, it's not even a critique. I'm just trying mm -hmm. to see sort of like unwind the threads of, mm -hmm. of what I'm engaging with mm -hmm. and how I want to engage with it. Mm -hmm. If that, if that makes sense, maybe that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, that really, that really does. And I mean, my own experience with academia is that there are good people in academia, but it, it doesn't feel to me that as an institution, universities can be reformed. Like, I just don't see that. Um, you know, they will throw money at their union busting lawyers. They will mm -hmm. not throw money towards their graduate students and adjuncts to make sure they have the dental insurance mm -hmm. or medical insurance they need or um, time off if they're ill or, you know, it's just, I think have you probably radicalized me more than anything else. Yeah. Have you all seen what's been happening in Indiana with Purdue? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's yeah, very I, disturbing. 
It is. I mean, but- I was saying to my That's staff, surprising. I was like, we need to just start, you know, the Indianapolis School of Poetics and yeah, start right. our own little MFA. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's just such a massive undertaking to, you mm-hmm. know, to create your own institution or alternative to an institution or whatever it is. Right. Um, but it's very sad to see because the money is there I believe you know if they want to have Mm -hmm. this program they can have it and they have had an amazing program and then the school decides no Mm -hmm. (laughs) we don't want to put money into this anymore and we're just more concerned about STEM and etc um so yeah it's very disturbing and that their funding decreased as the program became more queer and inclusive Mm -hmm. right too like knowing that like it's not just a oh it's the humanity suffering right it's like the kind of communities that can um you know thrive in in humanity spaces Mm -hmm. um yep and I I know yeah Kava Akbar had been tweeting about how you know they were really trying to bring in international students um, into the program and things like that. And that perhaps, you know, this is unwelcome by higher yeah. people. Yeah. Not sure. So right. mm. <laughs> I know I'm like very pro alternate, alternate community formation and looking for other spaces. And I think the finding resources that can be really hard, mm-hmm. but um. I mean, if we, if you wanted to start a new Black Mountain school, like mm-hmm. yeah. you could do, like the number of academics that don't have jobs right now, mm. um, and that are doing other things, or like there are so many floating people who mm-hmm. you know are mm-hmm. degrees or otherwise are so qualified to mm-hmm. um, be teaching mm-hmm. incredible things, and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was thinking about kind of to return to your manuscripts, I was thinking about something I was so attracted to in both of them is um, kind of a maximalist poetics, um, Mm -hmm. both in terms of like life writing and in terms of primary sources and form. And um, like, I'm just, and I think, you know, I think this is something that the humanities are really incredible at is kind of letting as much, you know, letting material filter through, letting there be room for many different things to exist together. Um, Amy, I love that Twyla's already dropped the word littoral, literal? Is it littoral? <laughs> I, do I don't know that? how to pronounce it because I've only okay. read it. Yes, say, <laughs> yeah. But it's L I T T O R A L. Yeah. Literal, the literal zone. Yeah. <laughs> like that idea. Um, yeah. We always joke in our house that we're a steam house, <laughs> you know, like not a STEM. Uh, but you know, I've got friends with PhDs in physics and genetics, and they're doing alt ac work, and they had terrible experiences with advisors too. So it, mm-hmm. you know, it's like I see it from a humanities spec- perspective, but like academia in general is mm-hmm. sick. And it's yeah. sick because of yeah. power and it's sick yeah. because of who, who gets the money and what jobs and administration and mm-hmm. uh, athletics and how they treat their, you know, athletic workers and all this stuff. Like it's just compounded. It's just, that's, it's just such a heap of problems and it mm-hmm. feels uh, pretty insurmountable. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I feel yeah. like that, I mean, maybe again, maybe I, I could be wrong about this, but it feels like that happened adjuncts, all of that mm -hmm. happened as the field opened to women and yes. to people of mm -hmm. color. Is that, is that, I, I, it feels like, <laughs> you know, the hierarchy was suddenly like, um, no, 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 no. We're not giving, it doesn't count as much anymore now that these people are, you know, you don't have the tenure job, the tenure jobs and, you know, working into your seventies and eighties anymore. Um, because now everybody mm -hmm. is allowed in, not just white men. Mm -hmm. and I know. Again, maybe I could be wrong. Mm. <laughs> but, that's, but, but one of my big hangups with, um, is it second wave feminism? Sorry, that was my, um, is, is just that. Like they were like, let us in, let us in, let us in. But if you don't change the, how the institution functions, mm -hmm. then you get eaten up by the institution mm -hmm. and you have to follow the rules of the institution. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and so it doesn't change the way the, the institution actually behaves yeah. um, as far as I can see. And again, like I'm not an academic, so I'm sure there are other people who could say, no, that's not right for this and this and this reason. Um, Oh, that and sounds about right. It's much <laughs> it's certainly it's much better that you that you do have women, white women and women of color and men of color who are who are able to who are teaching now. I mean, certainly that's a better situation than just than just white men, but it hasn't fixed, it hasn't addressed the underlying problem. <laughs> Yeah, it, we've been watching Deep Space Nine. We well, we we watched all of Star Trek Next Gen with our kids this pandemic, and now we're like over halfway through Deep Space Nine, and like the joke among the Ferengi that like the goal of every Ferengi is to become the exploiter. Um, and to yeah. me, like you know, if you've got a white woman girl boss in charge of the English department, I'm just like, hey, this is not a. <laughs> It's not any better. It's not better at all. Um, it's just there's so much um, like that where you just see the, um, the kind of the repetition of power structures. Um, and it's it's pretty disheartening. And um, I mean, I think about that beautiful Neil Gaiman gave that wonderful um, commencement speech, you know, make good art. And I play that for my intro to creative writing students sometimes at the end of a, at the end of like a summer course. Um, cause it's like, you know, your cat dies, make good art, <laughs> you lose your job, make it like, it's like, no matter what terrible things are going on, make good art because there is something very life affirming and very like life anchoring and life meaning when we can make something. And, you know, it might not be a poem. It, it might be putting a puzzle together. It might be hot chocolate, like whatever, whatever it is. I think like when we lean into making in our lives, like it's, it's rewarding and what we're really here for. Um, so it's, yeah. Well, I think like we as a society probably don't value that mm -hmm. um, very much. And I think mm -hmm. um, the whole issue of 
you know, college has to be a means to an end now. And I'm thinking about it in my own institution. There's some things where it's just all about the result. It's all about the, you know, graduation rate, the job placement, the, um, you know, and do creative writing and then people looking at it from a perspective of like, well, maybe this creative writing class really doesn't help these pe people getting jobs or something. Um, although I also went to a conference where they were saying that in Indiana employers were asking for, you know, what do they most need from these employees is like critical thinking skills, but critical thinking skills <laughs> are not necessarily in, I don't know that they're valued so much, you know, um, right now. Um, <laughs> we see like this attack on um, critical race theory and things like that. I mean, it's, um, I, I don't know, you know, if we could mm -hmm. value education for education's sake, like it doesn't have to be a means to an end, um, valuing the college experience, valuing learning and like Twyla said, you know, reading the primary text, reading a mm -hmm. primary text and then critically thinking about it yourself and coming up with your own thoughts mm -hmm. on it. I mean, I love that, you know, for my students and, um, and then going back to the adjunct thing, yeah, it's just like, we don't value people. And I was an adjunct for um, uh, a number of years, I don't know how many years, uh, where I was kind of like adjuncting in floors and, uh, and then just adjuncting. I mean, and I was living at like the poverty level. I mean, it's really bad. Yeah. I mean, I was on welfare and everything, but so, and I was like working full time, like as a professor, I mean, it's just really messed up. I don't really know um, when, why the whole, it's sort of just like, well, we could get away with it. And it's a capitalist yeah. society where, okay, our profits are bigger. We have a little more money now. Um, mm -hmm. I really don't know. I don't, I haven't like looked into the history of adjuncting and how this took off and how it's become so pervasive and just terrible. I mean, yeah. for the professors, it's really horrible. Yeah. So I do think poetry for me, this, this just reminds me, I mean, part of the reason I write is to find a different world within this, this world of um, impossibilities, mm -hmm. to find possibility, <laughs> to find other possibilities within a world that seems like there's mm -hmm. only one way of doing things. And it's one of the reasons I love, um, my, my MFA was in fiction, but my MFA in poetry has been through Twitter. <laughs> and um, I, love, I love the variety that's out there. Um, mm -hmm. I love the really weird experimental stuff. I love visual poetry. I love, um, you know, the narrative poetry. I love, I love, I love a good lyric. Like I, I don't see any problem. <laughs> In fact, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think it's just gorgeous like it's gorgeous and rich how much um how much variousness exists mm. right now and the fact that it doesn't have to be like you're this school or you're this school or you're this school yeah. of um poet that it all seems to be sort of out there and available if you look for it um mm -hmm. i think that's something really great that's happening 
And I think about that again with the garden and with um, sort of um, ecology as I understand it, which is that variety means health mm. and monoculture means not healthy yeah. <laughs> you know, on the path to extinction. Okay. So, um, so I think in one sense, poetry is very healthy right now mm -hmm. um, because there's a wide variety and a wide sort of, um, you know, anything, you can write yeah. anything. Yeah. I know it's yeah. not even something like, I know I'm not supposed to love this aspect because artists should get paid, but also we should have a universal base income. Let's start with that. Let's but with that. Um, I mean... <laughs> I do love that poetry resists money so strongly. I'm not saying there aren't people who have thousands to spend on whatever promotion, um, <laughs> buying oh, copies gosh. of their own books so they get on the New York Times <laughs> bestselling list. Um, but yeah, I, wonder uh, if we were, I thought I wondered if we were going to get to that tweet. <laughs> but at the same time, like I, I love that poetry resists money. I love that. Um, it's subversive. I there everything about the logic of poetry um, to me is about subversion, which is why like it, it doesn't work well for um, oh what do you call it um, like propaganda. It doesn't work well for actual political manifestos. Like it works well for other kinds of manifestos, like maybe manifestos of the ordinary life or family life or history or um, you know alternative histories or, you know, it's, that's something that I think about a lot because I, you know, I do want writers to get paid. I want writers to have respect. Um, I want writers to have support. I don't want anyone to feel like, um, you know, they don't have that in one way or another, even if it's finding like-minded creators on Twitter or whatever, like mm -hmm. find, you know, finding support is really important. Um, but yeah. 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 I love that it resists money. And I can say that because I'm comfortable because mm -hmm. I have enough, you know, I mean, that's a big reason that I can even write anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have time or energy if, if, yeah. if yeah. I um, was pulled in, you know, 20 different directions, like mm -hmm. many, many people are. And you know, just scraping by. So um, I like the idea of a universal basic income because you could be an artist. I mean, people have, I don't know if it's possible to do what like Merwin or Linda Gregg or um, the Oppens mm -hmm. did. George Oppen came from money too. So he always had like a cushion <laughs> to fall back on but they didn't live, they lived very, very simply and they wrote their poems and they made a conscious choice that that's what they were gonna do rather than, um, rather than make a lot of money and have a big house and you know, live in the suburbs, <laughs> whatever. I love the suburbs. I, I, will defend, I will defend, I will defend the suburbs. Um, but, but, the, but, but I don't know. And same with, I was in Bolinas um, mm. recently. I went for a week 
and stayed in a little native plant garden there with one of my um, California native plant heroes. Um, anyway, and, uh, and I went there because Bobby Louise Hawkins, who was one of my teachers at Naropa, was there. Uh, she was married to Robert Creeley for not married. Were they married? I don't know. I don't know if they were like partners or they were married. Anyway, she was with Robert Creeley and had several children with him. Um, and they spent time in Bolinas and Joanne Kiger um, lived there, I think, most of her adult life after she was, she and Gary Snyder ended. So um, anyway, they did that too. They did the live with very little and write poems and work like a working class mm -hmm. job. But I don't know that people could, I don't know that you could make enough money to be able to do that now. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if that's even a possibility. So I love the idea of a universal basic income where people, if they wanted to, could make that choice to say, I'm going to live pretty simply and this is what I want to do with my life. And um, I think that's a really good idea. I don't know how well, we get there. I tried that. <laughs> I, um, you know, in college, I was very much like, I'm just going to study what I love. And, you know, maybe this is totally impractical. I mean, I have a brother that's an engineer, a sister that's a lawyer, and I was sort of the weird one. Um, <laughs> and my family being very like practical, you know, I was just saying my grandparents were immigrants and, you know, they didn't go to college and stuff like that. But my, the first generation, like my parents and all their, my aunts and uncles and stuff, they all became like, went to college, like became professionals. Of course they have the white privilege as well. And that helped them in doing that. Um, and then the next generation, it's you're expected to even do more, you know, or something. Um, you just feel that pressure. It was like, it was never a question. Like you are going to college, you're going to do something. And so I loved plants and I also loved poetry. And so I majored in horticulture, I minored in poetry. And I also felt that I wanted my poetry to be pure and it was just gonna be like on the side, a hobby. I wasn't even gonna worry about publication um, because my professor in college, one of my professors in college was just very negative. <laughs> he was really a character, but he was just very negative about the whole thing. He was like, it's impossible to publish. It's impossible to be a professor, da, 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 da. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm not gonna really worry about that. I'm just gonna do my thing on the side. And then I became a florist and I was just kind of eking by, I mean, <clears throat> at the grocery stores, just, just enough to kind of support myself. Um, and then I tried to do sort of an MFA on my own to try to find community because that's really, and also I wanted to improve and I couldn't improve just by myself, I was finding I wasn't improving enough. And then Butler started their MFA and I got in. And then the week that I found out I got in, I found out I was pregnant um, <laughs> with, you know, my current person that I'm with, but we've had a really long bumpy road and we have not always been together. We've not always lived, we've not always lived together, um, ups and downs. And so for a while I've lived on my own with my kids you know, not having much income. He doesn't have much income. Um, or it did not have much income at the time, whatever. I didn't have, you know, so like I'm trying to like write, adjunct, take care of my kids, 
I'm in the welfare system. Like I have to get, even working full time, you know, I still qualify for, you know, childcare assistance, um, uh, Medicaid, things like that, you know, and being in the system, that's a, actually a constant job um, when you're in the system. Like you constantly have to um, send stuff in, deal with things constantly. Um, I don't know, it's just so stressful. And I did, I was writing and everything, but I think, yeah, it was hard. It was like the writing quality, I think it's more difficult because it's so much stress on you. Um, and like you said, if there was some sort of <laughs> universal base income, maybe to help people. Um, yeah. I don't know. And I am in, I'm in a much better place now, um, personally, professionally. And I feel like, yeah, it's, it's been easier for me to write now. And I'm getting a little bit more success in my writing and stuff. And um, so it is very sad. Yeah. When I think of the people who um, are not able to um, do what they want to do because of their circumstances. And I think of my grandmothers a lot too, because they were um, held back in many, many ways. Thank you both for talking about your different positions and where you're coming from right now, because um, I just think it's, I'm really big on transparency and it's not just for, for performance sake. It's for the fact that someone needs to hear this and um, the more honest we are with each other, you know, that we can trust each other more when we're truthful with each other. And so that's something that's really, really important to me. Um, and that's um, frequently the way um, I have been felt failed by institutions when you can tell they're not actually speaking truth to you. They're telling you something else to pacify you. Um, and so, I mean, that's something, I think that's why I love poets and writers that I often do feel like we are working hard to speak truthfully to each other. Um, not that it's all truth across the board. Um, but yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I know people hate the term best practice, <laughs> or at least, you know, it can be kind of institution speak in a way, but I do I think it's good to think about. Um, yeah, and that's really... I, and and I was, and I, and I want to say too, like when I was in really bad situations and things were not going well and I was just like in survival mode all the time, I did think about um, the hierarchy and the structure and like, how can I get my book published and how can I get a better job and how can I like be into the how can I get into this system right because I felt like it was like a lifeline like I need this yeah. to survive right. um and now once actually once I got my full-time job at the community college not that this is a guarantee of keeping this job but once I got the full-time job I was like okay I'm retiring from poetry <laughs> like I, I mean I'm retiring from trying to publish and stuff and like worrying about that like, of mm. course, I'm still going to write. Like, you know, you're always going to write in your journal and you're always going to write. But I was like, oh, I don't, maybe I don't have to worry about, you know, mm. trying to publish and trying to thinking about these things. Because I think that's a whole separate, you know, your work and your writing is one thing, but then yes. the whole other side of like publishing. Yes. And if you have a book, what do you do? You know, what are you mm -hmm. choosing? How are you going to market it? Are you going to participate in that? Are you going to do readings? That's a whole other side. And yeah. it takes up a lot of brain space. And yes you know, how much are you going to give to that? And... Mm -hmm. I, for me, the really big deal was when my book was accepted by Bull City. Um, I just like allowed myself to rest and mm -hmm. 
like I still send out a little, but not nearly so much. And I just, I didn't feel like, I mean, it's a total, you know, we tell ourselves like things are important to our identities. I think that's a lot of times for me, at least that's when I'm like, oh, I have to, if I don't publish, I don't exist or if I don't. And then I was like, it's fine. (laughs) It's really fine. And uh, I mean, I think having like anxiety and health issues too, you're like, I've got it. I have to take care of myself. Like I, you know, it's, that's important. You have to have a self that's being taken care of. And if you're going to make art, if you're going to have time, I mean, I do love that poetry and writing in general, but poetry most of all can fit into the marginal times in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I, I do really love Eugenio Montale's essay, The Second Profession, oh. where it talks about like poetry is what you do second to every, like, I love that. Um, and that's one of those kind of, you know, he also wrote the second life of art, which I love that too. Um, and that to me has always been, yeah. Can you say those again? Because I want to write them down. Um, so it's Montale's, um, the second profession and then the second life of art. His essays are really, really good. He's Italian. Um, and that just, it, you know, I used to, when I was in college, I used to kind of be really, you know, I worked retail and I'd constantly watch p- other people working retail that I ran into, you know, just nor- normal life. Even if I was like, not even retail, but like at the movie theater and the person selling tickets was writing on a piece of paper. I, I could, al- <laughs> I could always tell if they were writing poems. I could always mm. tell. And I, <laughs> I loved seeing that someone leaning on the counter at JC Penney, they were definitely writing a poem. Like, I love that. And I, I think that gave me a lot of hope about how it could fit into my own life, even if I was doing other things or, um, and it's just, I feel like poetry is the most generous genre that way, as opposed Mm -hmm. to prose or essays where you do sometimes need, like, you have to have four or five hours to sit down and really, Mm -hmm. really work on Mm -hmm. those and get the words on the page. Um, but yeah. Oh, and can I just say, I don't trust prose. <laughs> hmm. so, um, Tell because... me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, prose is Mormonism. Oh. Mormonism is all in prose, right? There are these statements about what's allowed and what's not allowed. Institutions are all in prose. Hmm. There's statements about what's allowed and what's not allowed and who's allowed in and who's not allowed in and poetry, um, <laughs> poetry you know, breaks the line and makes openings mm-hmm. where prose tends. And again, there are exceptions, right? There are people writing prose that are challenging that, hmm. but look at, you know, look at the way, um, look at propaganda is in prose not in poetry. Hmm. It's like these little slogans Mm -hmm. um, that are these very broad, um, usually false statements Mm -hmm. that people then say, yes, that's true. And so I just don't trust it. And with poetry, um, it can mean, (laughs) one line can often mean three or four different things, which is, I think, closer to the actual nature of language because if you look at one word it will usually have several definitions and then you go back to the etymology 
and the etymology mm-hmm. goes way, way, way back. Again, again, like, um, again, like plants, right? Having roots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there are all these roots underneath. And then all you see is the plant on top, right? And there are the leaves and there's the flower. There, there are the petals and the corolla and the stem. You know, there are all these different different parts and words are like that too. And I think poetry tends to honor that. It tends to honor all the parts of a word, of one word. And prose tends to choose one definition of the word and then of of words and then put it in a statement, you know, that, that wants to be right. (laughs) that isn't asking a question that wants to be, wants to be right. And I'm making, I'm making some pretty broad generalizations here too, but the, but I do, I don't, I don't trust it. I don't trust narrative, even Mm -hmm. my own. I will say that too. Like when I start looking at the stories that sort of run through my head over and over and over again and unthreading, is that actually accurate? Mm. that really Mm. the way things are, yeah, you know, um, even my own perception isn't always right. Mm. And so, um, so yeah, so I tend to like poems because poems like poems invite, Mm. um, complexity and connection and openness and prose tends to, um, narrow Mm. rather than widen so make wider make room yeah i i know because i keep having this goal of like oh i want to write some essays Mm -hmm. (laughs) creative that picture but as you said you know my narrative is not uh, i mean you write a narrative from memory my memory is not correct you know in relation to other people's memories and uh, yeah it's 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 fraught for me also to write prose or to write like creative nonfiction. I really want to, I, I love reading it, um, but I do worry about it. Cause I'm like, you know, this is, it's true, but it's not true. And mm. it's, you know, and like the poetry it, it's, you don't feel like you have to be, you just, I, there's just so much more freedom. And like you said, it's not, you can, it can be interpreted so many ways and it's not just a straight narrative. Like this is what happened. And, yeah. I think that's why I mean, I love hybridity and mm-hmm. I love yep. um, short forms and that's really, I'm gravitating more and more to fragment and um, short form. And, you know, the, the facets, the, the multifaceted, um, the different, you know, having I have sisters that are very close and we'll remember something the same thing, mm-hmm. totally different than each mm-hmm. other. Um, yep. Yep. And I, yep. I'm very attracted to that. Like, I, I love that. And I think that's why I find life writing just about a thousand percent more interesting and intriguing than like magical realism or like, mm-hmm. like uh, whenever I read something, it's, I don't know. I just, I'm so interested in nonfiction in people's lives because mm-hmm. the way we write them like that there's an element of, of fiction and that there's an element of I mean it, they're made narratives they're always made um 
Yeah. I mean, when Twyla was speaking, I was thinking about, well, A, Twyla, your manuscript ends with that beautiful um, visual collage poem with the water and Genesis. And I love that you end with Genesis too. Um, and, and the water with, with Natalie's work. And I was thinking about um, light on the water and that, yeah. um, that this, this is glinting thing and this mirrored, you know, I was thinking about like poetry is like a mirror or something that refracts and reflects, right? Um, in fact, would, would you both like to read a piece um, from your manuscripts now? Just Twilight, a minute to though. find one. Yeah, I'll read the I'll read the Genesis. Oh, awesome. Uh, Thank you. Um, the beginning. Heaven and earth and void and darkness and waters and light and light and darkness. The waters, a firmament, the waters made the firmament and the waters were so called heaven. Evening and morning gathered heaven, water and land, earth and seas gathering seed, grass, herb, tree, light, darkness, waters, earth, together, yielding. Thank you. Yes, thank you for reading that. I love your visual poems, as you know. Um, they're going to be some in spring, I think, in Indianapolis Review. We have some coming out. Um, and I love visual poems in general. Like, I'm, we did a visual poetry issue um, last, I don't know, a year or two ago um, in Indianapolis Review. It was amazing um, putting out the call for that and getting so many different styles. And um, it's just it's so much fun because I, I love visual art and to combine the two is so cool. Yeah, I'm with you. And I love that you're doing that at the Indianapolis <laughs> Review because a lot of journals poetry journals aren't open to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it is really like one of my favorite things right now mm -hmm. is visual poetry and finding yeah. sort of that, um, the, the meshing together of those two mediums is endlessly fascinating and satisfying um, mm -hmm. for me. So. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to decide. <laughs> I feel like I should read a florist poem um, since we've been talking about it. Um, should I go ahead and start? Or yes. Is it okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, this one is called The Florist Thinks. And yes, often I was writing little notes when I, when I would get done with my work, I'd be standing there at the counter. Uh, one terrifying moment, I actually left my journal at work. <laughs> so scared because there's all kinds of stuff in there um I went back to work and I don't think anybody messed with it I saw it but um yeah I used to write little notes and I think this one anyway I'm sure I worked on this at work at some point so it's called the florist thinks how cleverly the dumb flowers announce their sex 
frame it with every color and shape of silky, spongy petals. If you ask me, I will fill your occasions with these bunches of slick plant sex advertisements. Nothing like their come hither pistol glare for a happy birthday, I love you, new baby. Scientists actually show it on screen. Your brain in color, your brain on flowers, becoming less blue, being more yellow. I will meet your I will meet your needs in turning these blooms by their ovules, those things that tick, secretly thinking of fruit in each blossom's barreled deep. Thank you. Yeah, I love, I told, I emailed Natalie. I love those, the florist poems. I just Aww. love them. And it's going to, I'm going to be engaging with my grocery store florist in a completely different <laughs> way. <laughs> after reading, after reading your, um, after reading those poems. So That's thank funny. you. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think I'm going to order some honeysuckle. This is totally tangential, but I think I'm going to order some honeysuckle to plant, but we've had a a patio put in our backyard and they asked to like, if they could pull up a plant that was growing these tiny little trees that have berries, they're really small. And I was fine with them taking them out, but I think I'm going to put a vine up over that fence. I think it's going to be honeysuckle. And I looked up honeysuckle last night and there are so many different kinds you can get. Uh It makes me really happy. So (laughs) excited red i mean like beautiful beautiful Mm -hmm. honeysuckles Mm -hmm. i grew up with like the yellow and the white everywhere Um, Mm -hmm. and we have some wild already growing on one side so and i'm pretty sure i cannot kill honeysuckle Um, (laughs) right yeah i was gonna say you might want to go with the one that's less invasive i think the red is not as invasive i think hummingbirds right like that one the red one oh i love that because we have tons of hummingbirds around here Mm. I stopped feeding them because they're so aggressive. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And territorial. They, yeah, they mm-hmm. hit into each other. Like they do like the, it, and the fighting was so mm. stressful. Wow. <laughs> like, I, was like, I was like, I'm not feeding you anymore. <laughs> like, so, I mean, it's wonderful you get to see them, but they are so pugnacious. Like they're mm. these tiny little fireball birds and no one <laughs> talks about that. <laughs> Yeah, they're like little dogs, right? Oh, like yeah, they, yeah. They're, they're like little dogs who tend to be more aggressive than yes. than like the big, scary-looking dogs. Often, yes. um, they're fierce little, fierce little birds. They are. They are. So I'm really happy if they eat the flowers instead of congregating around feeders. And well, I wonder if that's how fairies got the reputation for being. Um mischievous aggressive Mm -hmm. like do you know what I mean because Mm -hmm. I wonder if people saw hummingbirds and thought they were fairies oh oh maybe yeah I don't know the small world (laughs) welcome to my brain (laughs) (laughs) gonna need to write about that (laughs) um yeah that makes me think of some a movie I saw on Netflix. Oh gosh. And now I'm not, I'm not going to be able to remember it. Ugh. But I mean, it was about a little girl who had some relationship with fairies. This was like in England, I believe somewhere. In the oh. And then she later became like a garden designer and won some 
big award. I don't know. Anyway, I, I'll might I might Google it and send it to you guys. Yeah, I would Especially love that. Twilight, yeah, Twilight, you would really like it. I think um, it was it was really cool. Her design was based on like the natural landscape, and you know, it was it was at the what is the that huge flower show? It's like the Coventry uh, Garden, maybe. No. I don't know. I can't remember exactly, mm-hmm. but yeah. I was thinking the other day. Well, I was I was finishing reading Bell Hooks all about love, and mm-hmm. she talks about when there are angels in the kind of mainstream imagination, what that means for like how we're thinking about our lives, and um, I just it's really interesting. I'm like I'm an elder millennial, and um, mm-hmm. there were so many fairies and angels in popular text and movies. I mean, there was like Fern Gully. There were you know, all the angel movies. I mean, it's really interesting that that was such a part um, of like the popular imagination. And now I think so much less. Um, Also copia, which I think is not healthy for our brains. Yeah, Yeah. I know. I know. Oh my goodness. I know. Um, Really and truly, I'm just really terribly terribly proud of everyone who's alive right now um and really sad about how many people have died I just um well a I heard my first this is a total aside we're definitely having just a conversation right now uh uh, I heard my first like labor sermon this week and I was just like staring up at the pulpit and my my parents were next to me in church and I was like this is amazing um and our pastor was talking about um, the candle factory in Kentucky that, oh. you know, had the workers at 3am mm-hmm. and the collapse mm-hmm. and, and um, the week mm. before we had a visiting pastor who was talking about, you know, 800,000 people who've died. And mm-hmm. it, it just, I'm really grateful to people who, you know, are choosing to talk about these things to their congregations. Um, and, you know, I, I can't, I can't, see us being able to speak truth without speaking truth about labor and equity right now and um basically the powers and principalities that are corrupt big business that are everywhere um and our pastor bringing up like you know what with christmas there's there was huge there's a huge demand for candles and that's why these people were working around yeah. the clock and linking it to our consumerism and yeah I mean, these are really heavy, hard topics and my kids were sitting next to me and I'm so glad they were hearing this because like, yes, like again, and you know, it's that whole, like, is the weight entirely on the individual buying a candle at Christmas? Like, no, of course yeah. it's not. And I just want to say that because, um, I do think we should find joy where you can in small things. And, um, but it doesn't mean you need to ignore, um, the you know labor injustices that are literally happening in our neighborhoods um and to folks working around the clock right now some every all the all the different folks and um so there was like that and it just yeah yeah Mm -hmm. that our words our words have weight no matter where they are right whether they're in our poems or our the popular imagination or and i think that's why you know, reading isn't going to save us, but it's, 
it's important for all the different windows and doors it can open um and bell hooks for like being one of those Mm -hmm. um really present people culturally like that she knew what was happening and spoke about it yeah and often people in power or dictatorships will you know they want to silence poets Mm -hmm. writers they are seen as dangerous um yeah because of that I did yeah. find the movie it's called um, uh, <laughs> Dare to be Wild. I just put the link in there. Oh, it's it was called- a che- Dare to be Wild. And it was like the Chelsea Flower show. I think it's based oh, on a cool. true story. Cool. Interesting. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look into one. it. I really, <laughs> I really love gardeners and people who are into gardening. I just think there's something really special about them. Um, so I do, I, the reason I started gardening was because of Mer. well, that's not true. I've always been a gardener, but the reason I started the whole native plant garden in my backyard was because of Merwin. Mm. So I started awesome. reading Merwin's poems and fell in love with his poetry and then um, stumbled on the Merwin Conservancy and his mm. palm garden in, uh, which is mostly native Hawaiian palms, mm-hmm. many of which are now mm-hmm. extinct mm-hmm. in their native habitat. And um, and I was walking the native plant garden every day when we first moved here down at our state park. Initially, I thought I was going to do like some Japanese style. Um, you know, that's what I associated with California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I fell in love with these plants that are like that have grown here forever and started learning about how, um, which is sort of like, duh, when you hear it, right? But that, that there are insects that have these relationships that have happened over millions of years with particular plants. Mm-hmm. And when you take out the plant, mm-hmm. the insect dies, right? So when the plant disappears from the landscape, And then the insect, of course, feeds the bird and the bird likes that particular insect. And so if you've killed off that insect, then you've killed off the bird and that bird is food for, and it goes on and on and on, right? This, this sort of um, connection. So I, so plants and poetry are really inter (laughs) intertwined for me. And I always, I feel like I'm always saying, um, well, how can I make that work in my life? Rather than like, there's no way I can do that. I'm, I adjust. (laughs) I like say, well, I can't do this or this or this, but I could do my own version of it that Mm -hmm. might look like this. And um, I think that that's finally how I'm approaching publishing as well, which is with zero investment. Hmm. And sort of like if I have a piece that I like, I throw it out into the world to Mm -hmm. some magazines that I think would like it. And if they Mm -hmm. don't like it, that's all right. Because I went through this amazing process of, um, of allowing language to move through me for a minute Mm -hmm. and um, exist in the world and have uh, words exist in the world in a particular arrangement yeah. for a minute and then you know maybe that's maybe that's all that actually matters to yeah. me 
Um, so, yeah. and I loved, um, I'm going to misquote it, but, and I can't find my Lucy chat book, which is uh, Jean Valentine's, oh. sorry, oh. that's my dog. Um, Jean <laughs> Valentine's Lucy poems, where um, she, t the, the very first little poem in there is like about her scratching, um, you know, figures in the dirt mm -hmm. and not having to have them last. Yeah. And I think yeah, that yeah, that is my poetics. Like okay. it's the poetics of sort of disappearance or, um, yeah. or transformation, shape-shifting, you know, not trying to hold things still, allowing things to sort of move and flow rather than trying to, to make things make things whose nature, it is not the nature of words. It is not the nature of na nature. <laughs> it is not the nature of human beings to, to be static, to be one thing. And, um, and I love that. I mean, that's like the most beautiful, that's like the most beautiful thing to have something exist for a moment that gives you joy. Um, what a gift. That, that is very relevant to gardening. I mean, and plants, I mean, everything's ephemeral. It changes every day, you know, you get used to some things die and you just move on or you move things around um, and just you're constantly creating a new, every day your garden is like a new, a new poem, a new book. It's yeah, and it's every collaboration, day. right? Mm -hmm. Like I feel like the plants, the plants tell me where they want to live because mm -hmm. if they, if they, they die, they don't oh, want yeah. to live in that spot. If I, if I have tended the plant and I have taken care of it the best way that I know how, and it dies, it means there's something about where I planted it, either yeah. something about the soil or the sun or whatever, that it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not happy there. And mm -hmm. so then I can try it in an, you know, I can reread about what it likes, but gardeners are like poets. Let me tell you, like when I go on my <laughs> Facebook groups and I'm like, you know, what is your experience with such and such a plant? And you get like 500 different, <laughs> different opinions about what is the right way to, um, mm. to care for or tend or whatever, uh, you know, whatever plant you're asking the question about. It's really funny. Humans are really funny. 50 but, different manifestos on, yeah, how to grow, exactly. on how to grow such and such. Yeah. Yeah. But I love but I what do you're think doing. It's with, like a with... conversation. It's like you're, you're, well, I actually coo and pet my seedlings. I talk Aww. to them every morning. I, <laughs> I'm like, are That's you so happy? Sweet. What do you need? <laughs> so, um, so I, so it, it is a literal like crazy plant lady conversation, but it's also, <laughs> but it is also like watching. It's like motherhood. It's like watching and looking and saying, Hmm, is that happy there? Um, does it need more water? Maybe it needs more light. Maybe it would be happier over in this place. What can I do to, to help this plant sort of be, reach its full potential? And I think that's true of poems too. And then you sort of have to get out of the way and let them be um, at a certain point. So, or you, or you kill them. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, I love what you're saying yeah. about, and it's so humbling. I think when you plant something and it doesn't do well, <laughs> like I'm just so humbled by that when I, or, you know, like you plant the mint, you're like, oh, I'll be able to keep the mint in that spot. And then it sends out its little runners to everywhere else. Oh and- yeah. Mint is dangerous. <laughs> oh, I'm still trying to get it out of one spot. It keeps popping up. I'm like, it's dangerous. Yeah. Or like, I'm like, you didn't even do great in that spot. Why are you still? Because <laughs> the oh, pines, yeah. we have so much shading at our house that, mm-hmm. you know, it's like really leaning into partial shade plants. Um, and sometimes I'm like, maybe this will do okay. And it won't. Um, and like, I finally determined like this one place. I'm like, no, this is the herb garden. Herbs like it here. Herbs are okay with the fact that it gets so hot in Carolina summers. Mm-hmm. Um tomatoes have a hard time down here tomatoes are amazing in um virginia yeah. but in the midwest oof. we do better with tomatoes but yeah, yeah. In the South, it's it's it, it's a it's a definitely a challenge um and you know and realizing that something can survive in certain places but the difference between surviving and thriving are so marked when they're plants um and I, it's harder to see with your writing and your work. Um, but it's, it's true of that as well. Um, I don't know. It's just so beautiful. I, I used to, I don't know. I think I grew up with like sermons where you had these pastors that wanted to do object lessons all the time. And I found their object lessons really cheesy as a child. Um, but as an adult, maybe I'm getting more drawn into them. Um, Okay, I have found a poem. I want to read you both on this topic, but I would also love to hear another poem from both of you. Maybe I'll just read mine first to you. Yeah, you read. You now read that I, yeah, I created yeah. an awkward pause. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this this had to do with Twyla cooing to her plants, which I love. Um, and you know they've done studies with sounds and plants. Um, and what plants respond to. This is from a manuscript called Sonatas for Wheat Fields. That's what it's called right now. Um, And this is the title poem. And the, um, so it's called Sonatas for Wheat Fields and then it's got a little note under it. And it says, in 1989, engineer Eugene Camby played J.S. Bach for his wheat fields. And he had these control plots. Um, and I just love, I just love everything about this um, as someone who grew up around not wheat, but um, sorghum and soy and cornfields, mostly dairy farms. Um, so this is a poem to see. So sonatas for wheat fields. And then it's got the note about him playing to see how the wheat would grow accompanied by violin. Eugene set the record players up at dawn. He played Bach for his wheat fields and the wheat waved and bowed, or was it the wind? The sonatas running over the wheat like the sun, the evening sprinklers clicking into rain. What did Eugene find? A 66% increase in comparison with the control plots of wheat. His own love of Bach. Eugene discovered he could listen with the wheat in most weathers. Dorothy Ritalik of Colorado Women's College wrote the book, The Sound of Music and Plants. 
discovered that plants respond best to an extended F note, preferring classical and jazz, entwining themselves around the speakers while turning away from rock and metal. What to do with fringe belief or with what we think of as fringe consigned to the edges of fields. If we think too long about the emotional life of plants, where will that lead? Where is the yield? Some scientists think the vibration of music similar to birdsong or breezes, but how to lead a person to care about a bird, a breeze. Give them a silent, still day. Or better, give that person a field. Give them the honey of Bach. Let it run over their body like light and air, like butter yellow and turner, like broken eggs on the floor of an old Dutch painting. Gorgeous. Wow. <laughs> gorgeous. I love that. Um, that yeah, manuscript does a lot this. with like, oh, thank you for listening. Um, my captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, that manuscript does a lot with art art and it phrases mm. and um i just love thinking about that in conjunction with with plants as well mm. i love the way that eggs happen in your poems Hannah. oh <laughs> they're always <laughs> right they're always getting all over the place oh um, I, I love the egg yolk and i love the image of the sun and the egg yolk mm. together and then the color of the fields to the honey of the fields, mm -hmm. all of those like warm golden yellows and Bach, like the, the cello suites. I think I, I think I mentioned this on Twitter mm -hmm. um, that I often, that's like when I'm watering, mm -hmm. I'm not watering now cause it's rainy season, but mm -hmm. when I have to water when it's not rainy season, cause I water all my plants by hand, mm -hmm. um, I, I play that. I play mm. wow. box cello suites and I almost can't do other music mm -hmm. um, when I'm doing that. There's something about those that is just right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. It's true. And I just want to say, I am so excited about your front yard and how you got rid of lawn and you're doing all native plants of your front yard. And I, amazing and I wish everyone would do this I know it's a huge kind of project and transitioning I'm slowly you know digging up my lawn um because mm. I finally have a house now um just this past year um and I'm so excited to just get rid of all the lawn and mm. you know saving water saving mm -hmm. resources um yeah I think it's a big deal yes. I mean you can, yes. I, I can't even imagine if more people would do that you know the impact it would have on our environment if all if our lawns were you know mm -hmm. native plants primarily mm -hmm. and instead of lawn and the monoculture monoculture and all of that and the fertilizer and the waste yeah. and the, we get the runoff they I recently heard that Indiana is like one of the biggest contributors to the all this runoff of fertilizer and all this stuff that goes into the Mississippi and then goes out into the Gulf and causes oh, sure. algae bloom and, like, and it's like, yeah. Yeah. So the, the history of the lawn is totally fascinating mm -hmm. and I'll let you, I mean, you probably know it a little bit, but I'll let you look it up. It's all about prestige. It's all, it's all linked to the gentry in England, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, yeah. 
And it's just so funny that yeah. like, I'm still doing that. Yes. That's what I mean. Like you can't, yeah. you can't not be in conversation with the past. Even mm-hmm. if you think you're, even if you think you're not, you are, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're playing some old record yeah. Absolutely. Um, that you may not even know mm-hmm. or realize you're playing. So yeah. And the, the, um, the native plant garden is just like a joy. And again, like that's connected to like, John has said, you spent, you know, almost 20 years being the primary caretaker for children, go do what you want to do. Yes. And so (laughs) this has kind of been the, this has kind of been my, Mm -hmm. um, my second, the second half Mm -hmm. of my life is Mm -hmm. going to be poetry and plants. So, Mm -hmm. And really, you know, I never, I never wasn't writing. I've never not been writing since I was 10 years old, Mm -hmm. but the things I was writing were, I didn't think counted Mm. because they were journals. They were about my children. Mm -hmm. They were, they were, I didn't, I thought I was a fiction writer and I would write these little short, you know, very sensual, very descriptive sort of passages in my sensory, so sensual descriptive passages over and over when I go back and read the journals. It's just about like a day or standing in the sun for a minute or, mm. you know, um, watching the sparrows come. And, mm. and I was like, oh, nobody ever said, maybe you're a poet. <laughs> <laughs> that that might've been helpful at some point for somebody to say, oh, maybe you're a poet you like Virginia Woolf and you like Michael Ondaatje and you think those, those guys are novelists. Mm. Um, and so you think they're novelists, but, but maybe mm. not. Mm. <laughs> so. I do. I want to mention that. Uh, so Vita Sackville West's spouse, Harold Nicholson, who had like a distinguished que- career in the like um, British, what do you call it? the civil service, the foreign service, um, I meant foreign service. Um, but his notes that he took on their garden, um, he wrote, he titled it my life's work. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I just, I find that like really stunning that it wasn't even like, I mean, he wrote some books, he wrote a biography, he wrote some other things, but, um, that it's the garden notes that, that received that, Mm. um, and I think that both of their writing about their garden was just, it's like some of the most intimate, beautiful writing possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. There's something, there's something about working with plants and gardening. Um, that well, there really are uh, ancestors, mm-hmm. you know, the plants came before the yeah. humans and they created the whole atmosphere mm-hmm. That allowed human beings to exist. Mm-hmm. And you can say that that's like woo woo or hippie or whatever, but that's actually scientifically true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The plants mm-hmm. created the atmosphere so that humans could come into being. And, and we share 77% of our DNA with trees, mm-hmm. which is from a book that I will find the title to, but it's, <laughs> by, David, it's by David. Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually about. Uh, it's actually about viral DNA. <laughs> it's by David Coleman, mm-hmm. I think is his name. And I think it might be called, it's, I think it's called the tangled tree, mm-hmm. it's, which is a, which is a, um, 
a play on Darwin's uh, The Tangled Bank, um, which is from taken from On the Origin of Species. It was mm -hmm. how he sort of described the natural world. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so so I think when we're when we are interacting with and and native peoples knew this, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but but white people came in, we came in and we thought with our rational, whatever they were calling rational, which was not rational minds that we knew better, but they had these deep, deep relationships with um, the flora and fauna that they were interacting with for, you know, tens of thousands of years before we showed up mm -hmm. and all that knowledge or a lot of that knowledge was lost. Um, but I think it's very old knowledge and I think it's um, very human knowledge. And I think if you start interacting with plants, you sort of can't help um, feeling that connection. Mm. You know, if I mm -hmm. die, the idea that death is a tragedy because you become grass or because you become a tree, clearly you have not spent enough time with grass mm -hmm. or trees. Mm -hmm. um, because they, um, you know, they're like these living, um, amazing things and they probably have language, <laughs> you know, they probably have ways of communicating. Well, we know they do chemical mm -hmm. ways of communicating. And just because we can't hear it or understand it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You know, well, that, that makes so humans are so, we are so full of ourselves mm -hmm. and so like um, egotistical to think that, uh, to think that we somehow know better than the planet that created us is, is kind of an astounding um, arrogance, mm -hmm. I think. Um, it makes me think of when I was a little girl, I named the is that we're in my yard and I would talk yeah. to them and everything. And um, also the toads, you know, I had like pet toads and I don't know. I mean, that's just the kind of person I was. And I guess I still am, although it's like, you know, as an adult I've become so much more remote from that. And I lived in apartments for so long. Like I said, I'm finally getting to have more space and mm. growing things. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I do love that. I, I, I will say, I feel like coming up on 50, I'm finally allowing my seven-year-old self mm. to be, mm. <laughs> you know, all the things that I was sort of educated out of. Um, I'm saying, oh, they were wrong. Yeah. And she was right. Yeah. And um, because I grew up in a really horrendous, um, horrendously abusive home, mm. outside was much safer mm. than inside my house mm. or felt much safer. And so that um, I think I was more open to plants and animals because, because they felt safer to me than human beings, mm. um, more predictable. <laughs> um, more manageable um, than, than what I was dealing with as a kid. So um, I do think, 
I do think there is something about getting older that um, is also about going back and saying, what was I taught that is just wrong? You know, and I knew it was wrong at seven, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have, I didn't have language or I didn't have um, the confidence or whatever to say, oh no, that's, that's not how I experience the world. I experience the world differently um, than that. So, yeah. yeah. So I do feel like it's sort of coming back to that. Um, I hear that. Absolutely. And I really try to affirm when my children say things that are just frankly smarter than adults and true. And I'm like, yes, like, because I don't think that's something I had in my life at that age. Um, like it was the, you know, adults are always correct. Children are, you know, children's yep. wills fall under the adults. And, um, and I think if you can remember what it was like to be a child, you will do so much better than it's still, it's so, it's so messed up to me when I hear an adult say, I don't like kids or because you know what they're, they're saying they don't like children's logics. They're saying they don't like, uh, frankly, children's wisdom. And it, it, and it, something happened to them, like, because they were a child. So how do they reject like childhood unilaterally and children and the vulnerable, like, because children, I mean, the way adults still are right now, adults are like, oh, we should be fine without masks. And I'm like, there are children who can't be vaccinated there are adults who can't be vaccinated. Um, you know, there are people who are allergic to the vaccine. There are all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and it's just the way they just are dismissive of people that are part of our community right this second. Um, is so, so frustrating to me. Um, and just says a lot about them more than anything else. And then dismissive of, um, in the poetry world, as far as if you're writing about um motherhood and I also put a joke in there in my poets are funny issue about you know motherhood poetics author (laughs) in my like fake gossip magazine it was like motherhood poetics (laughs) author you know shares um post baby body (laughs) like hear how she bounced back because you know making fun of the the culture that's so obsessed with their image and everything oh my gosh yeah how the motherhood poems, I mean, you know, if you're writing about your children or your motherhood, um, to, yeah, I've had almost no luck placing those poems. Mm. Um, I feel like those have been the hardest to place um, mm-hmm. if I'm writing about motherhood or children. Um, yeah. And a lot of people don't want, and I, I think it was on your podcast, someone was saying that in a workshop, I can't remember who this was, but they were saying in a workshop, they were told, I don't want to hear about like the motherhood poems or something like that. I mean, you always hear stories about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's true. weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really? I mean, like that's everybody had a mother, yeah. good or bad. Yeah. Like you came out of some woman's body and that's why you're here. Like it, it really is ass backwards. I don't, I don't have any time for that kind of nonsense. <laughs> Yeah. And that, um, and it's really great to just be able to say, like, when you encounter those people, oh, you're not my, you're not my person. Go, go be, go do your own thing over there. I don't need to, I don't need to interact with you or try to change your mind. 
or have any kind of, um, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. relationship with you. Yeah. And that is one nice thing about not being in, not being connected to, um, institutional power mm -hmm. and a nice thing about having no power is that I really can say, Oh, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're like some big muckety muck, important yeah. person. If you say something that's um, thoughtless and demeaning and whatever, I don't have to spend time with you or your work. Yeah. I get to choose. Yeah. I get to choose who I read and who I mm -hmm. give my attention to. And, and there's, there's really a lot of lovely, <laughs> lovely sort of soft power, um, to be had yeah. in that way, to just be able to say, to, to be able to say no, and to be able to say yes, and who you and who you get to, and that you get to choose who you say no, and who you say yes to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it is. That. Again, that's related to the fact that I'm comfortable, that I'm not having to, to navigate really tricky hierarchies, um, because it's my livelihood, you know? So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I mean, Twilight, you have work, you're not paid for your work, but you have work in your life. And I, I mean, just thinking about when, um, Natalie was bringing up like the things that are not valued, like the making things in our lives. And I thought about how the term homemaker is, mm -hmm. it has been one of the most lambasted, um, of, of career descriptions. It's also, you know, been politicized by the right. I mean, it's mm -hmm. my mother was a homemaker. Um, and you know, I'm a freelance, I call myself a a freelance writer and editor right now. And I do a lot of the cobbling together of work that many writers do. Um, I couldn't survive without my partner's support. Yeah. I couldn't provide for my children. Um, I would probably, probably end up teaching. Um, I teach in the summers, but um, part of the freedom of not having a traditional employer right now is that um my mouth, I could say what I want to say, and I'm never having to say, you know, make any sort of caveats or, you know, qualifications. Like I just say what I want to say. Um, and I know that's a big freedom. And, um, but it's also frustrating to me. Like my partner says, he says like your work should be fully paid. It's just our culture doesn't value it and you're not getting paid for it. And so I, I am bringing in like the financial support for our family and that's fine. Um, but he's like, it's because our culture doesn't value what you do. And he's very honest about that. And that, that is hugely like wonderful to have in my life. Um, yeah. but it's, it doesn't make it any less frustrating to see people who need the support who aren't getting supported. Yeah. Um, and the fact that our culture wants to consume, the arts <laughs> constantly and to have them at like arts and music and literature at their fingertips when they want it. Um, but that artists themselves are not supported. Um, and there are lots of countries where writers actually are, are given stipend 
and are taken care of a small countries that have a lot less than the u.s yeah and mothers yeah and mothers, mothers. as you're saying oh my gosh i mean the u.s as far as like yeah. <laughs> the the child care the, the caregivers the, the yeah. leave the leave you know when you have a baby mm-hmm. i was gonna mention, did, have you have you read this anthology is mother, mother reader um essential writings on motherhood it's by moira davy and there's um essays and things from um, Jane Lazar, Ursula Le Guin, Doris Lessing, Toni Morrison, Tilly Olson, like a huge range of people's really, really, really good. I just wanted to recommend that. Thank you for, that. <laughs> for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's very, um, very good. All really about appreciate being, that. all about being a writer um, while mothering. Mm-hmm. There's another really good one. There's one coming out by um, Nancy nancy reddy and um somebody else and i can't remember the other the other poet's name who i think they're co-editors on it um that's coming out but there's also this other one the grand permission Mm -hmm. which is yeah which is all (laughs) poets writing about motherhood and writing um i really love that what you said what your partner, John says the same thing that, um, you know, that work is work Mm -hmm. and it should be paid, but it's just not valued. And it's, and then it's co-opted by the right as like some divine calling. Yeah. Um, (laughs) which, which then makes it problematic to Mm -hmm. say it is valuable work because it seems like you're siding with (laughs) <laughs> you're yeah, siding yeah. with sort of the um a right uh uh conservative religious mm-hmm. um patriarchal yep ideal <laughs> um mm-hmm. but the truth is it is immensely valuable work yeah you know raising humans and and incredibly difficult mm-hmm. um much more difficult than working by the way yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it talks about more constantly, difficult. constantly having to shift. Like you think mm-hmm. you have a kid figure, you think you have, mm-hmm. okay, so this is working and this is working and this is working, this is working. Mm-hmm. Great. And that lasts like what, maybe six months. And then they go through like some other change and you're having to, you know, juggle around and shift things again mm-hmm. um, to adjust to all the, ch- it's like constant change mothering um mothering children so i i don't know but i do think i do think our society does a really shitty job of um i think actually the whole value system is backwards um that work period like why do do the people who pick our food in the fields not get paid thousands and thousands of dollars they're literally feeding us you know, like allowing us to get food into our bodies. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. And the idea that, uh, writing a poem is somehow more valuable than that work. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense to me for, for me, I think, um, uh, just hierarchy doesn't make sense to me at all because once you start looking at it, all of the little pieces that it takes um, 
to be able to function in our society. Like it's all connected and there is not one that is more necessarily more important than another. And if one falls apart, you have a whole bunch of other things that fall apart. So I just, um, there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta, <laughs> there's gotta be a, a better, more creative way um, to be. I don't know. I agree. And I really struggled with, um, just in terms of gender, like feeling that I got ultra feminized or like there were so many feminine expectations for me Yeah, with having children, even like, well, sorry, these are the maternity clothes you have to wear. And I was like, I don't like, like, <laughs> so <laughs> feeling, especially when you have like a gender queer relationship to your own body and feeling like, you know, everything about your body becomes so curvaceous and <laughs> like you just get this like motherhood body and then then feeling that people treat you in a way like, especially in, you know, English department feeling like it's like, oh, well, now you're an Uber mother and now you're this. And you're like, no, I am still an academic and a researcher and all these other things. Um, and mm-hmm. and frankly, it was really disheartening. Like when I see things on Twitter about how children have no place in, you know, children should never be seen in the workplaces. Children should never be brought into the conference room or the seminar oh, wow. room or the classroom. And like seeing some of the really <sighs> awesome things about like that bell hook said about children, like they know children are part of the revolution. Children should be there with us in the work. And I'm like, hell yes. Mm-hmm. I got in uh, trouble for was- that. <laughs> are you for real i got in trouble for allowing people's because i teach at a community college yeah, and so a lot yeah. of people have children yeah and, and i had this one class where i had about three people that were like bringing their babies i do, i have no problem with that. that obviously obviously this is before the pandemic but um somebody told on me like another te- another teacher yeah and then they had the security guard came and was like I hate to do this, but like, it's really against the rules and you're not what? supposed to do that. Yeah. Really bad. Wow. wow. <laughs> but I love the fact that like when the babies, when you've got like a fetus inside your body, it's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> I went to my entire lit crit, like my critical theory course at Georgetown carrying my first um, and everyone was like laughing about it. Um, and it was like, yeah, I hope he's like absorbing, um, critical theory by osmosis, you know, <laughs> are you hearing this Lacan, you know, <laughs> but then as soon as they're outside your body, um, or like being, when I was, um, came up for jury duty and I had a breastfeeding infant and, um, and they were like, oh yeah, but you can't bring your infant. And I was like, my child exclusively breastfed. What, what do you expect? Like, and they're like, oh, we're happy for you to have a room where you can go pump. And I was like, that is not what I'm talking. And I was, I was so angry. <laughs> I was so <laughs> angry about it. Like, I'm sorry. You don't, I'm lactating right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but you know, I actually didn't, I called uh, and I didn't have to go, but the way they treated me through that process, I was just really livid. Um, yeah. it's not enough care given to bodies, you know, and if, I mean, I had a six week old or something like it was ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Um, 
Yeah. And they think, and they think because you have a six week old, then you, you're free. Yeah. You're free to go do whatever. Cause you're home anyway. Oh, so no. what, are you, what are you doing? What are you doing at home anyway? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and forget the fact that like, I mean, our bonds with our children, I bond really, really strongly with mine. And, um, I had a friend come watch my baby at home so I could get to a class. I mean, and she was like a fellow graduate student that I knew really well. And I had to stand over the kitchen sink and dry heave to leave because it caused me a lot of distress. And I don't love that. That's part of me, but I just could, I can't like, I can't not feel something. And so just to act like, oh, if you have childcare, that's enough. No, it's really not. Even when you have, you know, friends or family stepping in to help you, which is incredible when that can happen. And I don't take that for granted. Um, it's like, it makes me ill. So <laughs> like how, yeah. Yeah. Yes. My, one of my friends would watch my son. So as I was saying, I was pregnant or I had my baby, you know, um lactating you know during this mm-hmm. whole gra- grad school experience and luckily my partner I was living with him at the time and he would anyway so I was just doing grad school mm-hmm. and um during that time and yeah one of my friends was like I can't keep your son anymore because they're gonna call the police on me because like he's crying so loud like he would just cry the whole time and he was like he never wanted to take a bottle I breastfed mm-hmm. and yeah it was it was rough and so I did take him to class they were nice about it um in grad school and it the thing is yeah if the baby starts busting or whatever you just leave the room and yeah. you know it's not that big of a deal but I mean it's not totally ideal as a mother because you yeah, I'm mm-hmm. kind of distracted but like you know in some cases when you need to do that you need to do that and I wish people would be more accepting of that yeah you know yeah for real oh. like that's actual um, material support yeah, yeah. I love the Sarah Rule book, a hundred oh, essays I didn't have time yes. to write. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. That line where she talks about um, uh, being interrupted and how she leaves the interruptions in the line. So oops, she types a seven in the middle of a sentence. And she's like, that was my toddler that I have on my lap who, who typed that seven. Mm-hmm. And she uh-huh. talks about how... Um, you know, isn't, isn't writing actually about life. Mm-hmm. And if you're not allowing the life to happen, mm-hmm. then how is the writing going to happen? Um, yeah. And again, like making them equal rather mm-hmm. than saying the writing is here and the children are here. Um, it's just all, it just all doesn't actually, when you look at it, it just doesn't make sense. The way we, the way our value system doesn't make sense. And it's all based on very, very old ideas um, about who counts and who doesn't. Yeah. And yeah. What was that book called? Seven essays. I didn't have time to write. One hundred. Oh, sorry. <laughs> they're the number they're seven. Tiny, <laughs> they're tiny little. I love her yeah. writing. She's funny. It's beautiful. You know, she's so funny. Easy to she, has, she has a book of poems out too. She that's does. really good. I haven't read um, it. I love them. Hmm. Um, I will have to look them up. Yeah, Natalie. I know your your children come home soon. Yeah, I would love. <laughs> Love it if you could read one more poem for us. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Let me find my document here. And you too, Twyla. I just thought Natalie could go first since. Okay, cool. 
Thank you. Okay, so we were talking about grandmothers, and I have one of my grandmothers um, on the paternal side. Name is her name was Elfrida. Um, for a time, she and my grandfather moved to California, and my uncle was um, born there. But then, much to her dismay, my grandfather insisted that they move back to South Bend. Um, but anyway, this is she has some my uncle once asked her to write up some notes about her time living in California. And it's a really amazing document. I took some quotes from it and put it into this poem. Um, and this is called born under a lilac bush. Uh, number one, in my mirror, there's always grandmother, the ones with birds in her laundry. She writes that fig tree in her small California yard took up all the air and brought those birds to her clothesline shitting and singing. When I wake up, Elfrida hovers around my cheekbones. Elfrida hovers around my mountain, the floor pile of laundry I leave all week and pluck my children's outfits out of. Two, when I had courage once, I asked Elfrida, um, sorry, I asked Elfrida where she was born, under a lilac bush on a mountain for all I know. After her death, my uncle sent me the photographs of the village. It's faded Pomerjewitze sign, black on white, vandalized by someone who wrote Victoria in a red like lipstick or blood. Around it, the tall grass had gone to seed. Elfrida was two years old when she left Upper Silesia. In her 20s, on the train leaving California, she cursed Indiana, her husband's crooked house that waited there. She cursed her husband's wine bottles, the time she slapped him for throwing the cat she cursed everything he did back, pregnant with another son on the train. Number three, notes from her typewriter, Compton, California, 1945. Other immigrants, small house, a lot of fields, husband, baby, stray cat. When it rained, the high curbs filled with water and even the shoes turned green in the closet. Newspaper curtains, one frying pan, knew where the toddler was by the cat's tail. It followed him into the yard. Fig tree, stars in the ceiling at an Italian restaurant. She never liked her food drowned in tomato sauce. When she wanted to sit down on something soft, she would go visiting across the street or she would watch the neighbors base their turkey through her window. It was like a stage play, a lot of mutton, finding coins with the baby in the park. She could take the bus downtown and, and waltz with these coins in her purse, completely free from the old country feud in South Bend, Indiana. It was all a game. He was repairing ships coming in from the war. He lost it. Meteor showers for days. Number four, they left Compton just before the second baby. They were gone off earth before I had my babies. Elfrida was back in California, her memory already missing when I gave birth. Did she know the palms? When first her mind started going, she wrote these notes on California, her youth, the story of her and her husband helping a confused old woman find home. An owl followed them, flying palm to palm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was one of my favorite poems in your collection. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I had to, I mean, it was a California, you're out in California, and I had to read yeah. it. Yeah. 
my grandmother loved California. She, my uncle ended up living there. He's a plastic surgeon. <laughs> and um, she loved going there. And she actually, she died out there, spent her last years there. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad she found her way yeah. back. Because yes. I feel that too. I love this place, like down to my bones. Okay, this is the, th I think this is the third part of the theories of heaven. Um, series theories of heaven and what if heaven is only grass close your eyes and see green blooming red with poppy kingdom planti family ranunculus tribe anemone jesus's lilies open invitation patient waiting for bees who've nuzzled flower bodies over centuries, seeking shortcuts of nectar, eons of strange and happy accidents, small deviations in size and shape, a slight change in the curvature and length of the probesis. Flower bodies oblige bees, in turn return, to spread pollen over patient years, over unhurried fields, over centuries, until they are a flood of bloom, a full flowered progeny. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I love those um, theories of heaven. I think those are some of my favorite moments in the gospels and to have them alongside Darwin in your book is just really, really beautiful and does really incredible things. I think to both, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks Hannah. for having us. <laughs> and thank you, Natalie. It was such a pleasure spending time in your poems. Oh, thank you Twyla, <laughs> for sharing all your work. I'm excited to continue our friendship <laughs> our virtual project maybe one day we'll, we'll meet in person well i've said but. this before and i'll say it again we have a very unfancy guest room oh. <laughs> <laughs> and if you ever need a free place to stay in california i know mm. vacations are expensive um you can come you can come crash Ooh, there's about awesome. room to sleep for but wow cozy it, it sleeps for in a cozy fashion. It's, it's also John's <laughs> home office, so. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Same goes for here, but you're looking at the guest room. There's a lot of plants and there's a futon. So. <laughs> <laughs> North Carolina, we have you covered. <laughs> yep, and Indianapolis, we have, I have a basement and <laughs> we're adding on and we're putting a bedroom in the basement and stuff so nice awesome awesome well to wrap up this episode i just want to say thank you to our all of our listeners and if you would like to read more of twyla newey and natalie solmer's work you can look in our show notes and you'll find links to their website as well as some of their poems thank you so much for joining us for episode 18